So we are going through the Gospel of Luke. And one of the benefits about going through the Gospel, uh, a whole book of the Bible, uh, even though we are skipping a little bit, but you, you, you have to kind of preach what's in front of you. You know, you can't, uh, when you do a series, you can kind of pick and choose like the best passages. You know, like if you, I, whenever we have a guest speaker, I really try to say, just preach, you know, like what's your favorite passage? You know, just go for it, right? The, the one that inspires you, the one that's exciting, the one that you have this really cool nugget about, you know, the, the culture of the time that will help us understand how to live in the present, you know? And sometimes you come across passages, you're like, well, this is, this is something, you know? Like Jesus said that, you know? Like, I don't know how this all works or this maybe doesn't, you know, connect perfectly with our context and time. And I'm not saying today is necessarily one of those, but on the surface, you may read this passage and think, like, I don't know what this has to do with my life. But as we dig a little deeper, I think we're going to find um, some significance here of what Jesus is claiming about himself and why that matters so, so much uh, to the, what we believe and how we live our lives. So will you pray with me as we jump into Luke 11? God, we ask today that um, even now, when it's easy to be distracted or it's easy to think about all the things we have in our lives, that we could dive deep into your word and we could understand uh, what your Holy Spirit laid on the apostles to write down and understand the significance of that for the people of that time and the significance for us today. And God, we ask that today we would grow in our faith a faith rooted in the good news of Jesus, that he died and rose again for us as Savior of the world. So we just uh, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word this morning. Amen. For those of you joining us online, I just want to say sorry. We had a little trouble uh, getting the service started. I hope you're still with us. Um, we, our, our camera or our phone was full from all of our services in the past, and we, couldn't, we didn't have any more room, so we're, but we're back. Um, so, I, I think that passages like this in Luke 11, this is a, a I want to read it in sections. It's Jesus uh, a, a, a encountering this, this mute man that's possessed by a, a demon. And Jesus casts out the demon. And all the people around Jesus start to question, how is he doing this? By what power is Jesus casting out demons. But what power is he doing the miraculous? How is he feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish? How is he healing blind people? How is he touching lepers and them being clean? What power is Jesus using to, to do this? And I think that whenever we encounter a miraculous passage, um, I, I think it can kind of strike us. And it should maybe like confront us with the reality that most of us live our lives without really anything supernatural happening, or at least acknowledging anything supernatural happening in our lives. Passages like this are, are difficult for those of us who have honed our beliefs to be much like the rest of society, who are mildly religious and believe that uh, primary beliefs of our, day, our primary belief for our day is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Uh, some people have coined the phrase the Christian atheism, right? Like we live our lives, we say we believe in God, but we live our lives as if God does not exist. Unless we're in deep trouble, unless we're, you know, 9-11 happens, unless our child gets sick, unless, you know, whatever tragedy could be going on in our lives. 
I kind of like this phrase. It's like, I believe in God, but I don't want to go overboard. <laughs> you know, it's like God exists. I believe in Jesus, but like, I'm only going to go so far, right? Uh, this is a common thing. This is probably how most Christians uh, that I know live their lives. I believe, but I don't want to go overboard. I believe, but I don't really know how God impacts every day of my life. This isn't surprising. This is uh, something that's happened throughout church history. I remember reading about Dietrich Hoffer, and he, he talked about cheap grace and costly grace. And essentially, you believe in cheap grace. Uh, you kind of just live your life as if God doesn't exist. You do what you want. You still believe in this God that's out there and that God will help you when you, you need him. Maybe he's even your Savior and, and Lord, but, but that doesn't really reflect on your life. That's cheap grace. He would call costly grace one that engages and it impacts every aspect of your life. And so for the first century Jews, I think that uh, God was involved in every aspect of their lives. They'd wake up every day and they'd say the Shema, like they'd, they'd, um, they, they believed in, in the spiritual realm, like there were spirits and demons and evil spirits and, and Satan that could tempt and prod and dwell and possess other people. They could influence not just individuals, but systems and structures. And so what Jesus is going to say and make very clear in this passage and look for it as we read it is that there isn't kind of this middle ground that you can take on what's happening. You either have to believe that Jesus is doing these things because he is part of Satan's kingdom or he's doing these things by the very power of God and God's kingdom. And there are a whole lot of people that are saying he's doing it by Satan's kingdom and then there's a whole bunch of people that are just saying, we like these signs, keep doing these signs and wonders. That's wonderful. And Jesus is saying, like, you actually have to make a decision. So let's start. Luke 11, verses 14 through 16. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So here we are. Again, some are asking for more signs to prove who he is. Some are accusing him of, of being aligned with Satan, and then it's, so you can see this rift happening right between the religious leaders of Jesus's day and, and Jesus and his disciples. It started off with kind of wow, this guy's probably a great teacher. He's doing these cool signs, and as we move further and further into this book, and later and later into Jesus' ministry, we're starting to understand that they're starting to have significant problems with Jesus. Luke eleven verse seventeen to. Through 20 continues, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan divided against himself, if Satan is divided against himself, Jesus says, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Essentially what Jesus is saying at the beginning of this passage is there's more going on than meets the eye. And that's what the religious leaders are saying too. They're both kind of saying there's more happening here than, than meets the eye. Uh, the last couple of months I've been experiencing health issues as many of you know. And there have been a number of times where my children and Sarah have said, man, you're ornery. 
<laughs> or you're cranky today, dad. Or why are you always yelling at us, dad? And I think that what I realized as I was going through this process of being in kind of constant pain is that there's more happening than what's happening on the surface, right? Like my pain is impacting my mood. It's causing me to be be quicker to anger, right? It's causing me to be a little bit more depressed. It's causing me to, to not be able to do the actions. And, and all they're saying is you're seeing these actions that Jesus is doing, but there's more going on behind this. And for the religious leaders, they're saying what's going on behind this, what you need to like actually understand is that this is the work of Satan. They're using the term Beelzebul. That's actually a term, it's kind of interesting in light of the book, but it's kind of this common frame of, of evil at the time and actually means Lord of the Flies. Uh, so I don't know if anybody's read like Lord of the Flies, but that's actually what it literally means. Lord, Beelzebul means the Lord of the Flies. And it's essentially this very vague term, uh, almost like derogatory term for Satan in the time period of Jesus. So accusing Jesus like this uh, was not just a way to um, reject Jesus' message, but you have to understand what's happening here. These two kind of groups of people, like the disciples of Jesus and Jesus' um, you know, crew and the religious leadership of the day, they're, they're clashing constantly. And there's kind of this like propaganda you know, going around about Jesus. Like he's, this, he's the Messiah. He's, and they're trying to like have this counter, like uh, I don't know, and advertising about who Jesus is, right? And so if they can create this narrative this propaganda that Jesus is working for Satan instead of God, this would impact how people interacted with Jesus, right? It wasn't just for those people around them, but it was for people from town to town to begin to ask questions. Who is Jesus and why is he able to do these miraculous things? Maybe it is the power of Satan instead of the power of God. So this is a big deal. And for these religious leaders, they're really, again, they agree with Jesus. There's really two options. There's really no neutral ground. You're either doing this by the power of God or you're doing this by the power of Satan. There are a few others in the crowd, though, that continue to ask for signs, as we noted before. They'd rather kind of sit in the fence and wait for more, something more from Jesus. They request, the request for a sign from heaven is, is vague, especially since Jesus has already done many acts in front of them. I think that, um, at least I'm this way, I, I, I grew up kind of asking Jesus for signs. <laughs> Did anyone else do this? Like, uh, I remember sitting in my room at night and like trying to read my Bible and I'd be like, all right, God, I'm not really sure if you're real, but if you are, you know, flicker the lights right now. <laughs> if you do that, I promise you, I'll believe forever. How many did that? How many people asked the, flick, the flicker of the lights, right? They did. Everybody did. I had a friend that did that, and the lights actually flickered. It was like a, there was like lightning, you know, it was lightning, and the power went out and then went back on right away. And he was like, well, it was just lightning. I'm like, no, you promised. You said if the lights went on and off, you would believe, and now you're trying to claim that it was just the lightning. That's not fun. It's not fair. 
We look at Jesus kind of as this, and maybe some of the people there, it's like, oh, this, here's this guy that can, can make any of our, uh, our needs a reality. It's almost like you've you got the, you know, these wishes from a genie, right? Jesus is this person that you go to to perform these miraculous acts that you can watch and be amazed by. But you don't really have to commit. You don't really have to follow you can just keep asking for signs. Well, I, I know that he did that one, but are we sure that that was miraculous? Could have the, you know, the person's sight but had been there the whole time and they were just fooling us, right? Or whatever else. Jesus knows about the speculation and he addresses it head on. And he essentially just says, if I'm working for Satan, then I'm doing a terrible job at it, right? Because why would Satan do good things against his own kingdom? Why would Satan fight against Satan? It makes no sense what you're saying. Satan's kingdom uh, is one of evil, right? One of injustice, one of oppression, one of violence. And Jesus is one of peace and wholeness and healing and beauty and delight, right? So verse as we go through this, Jesus makes the statement. And one, one part there that is a little bit confusing is verse 19. Jesus starts talking about Jewish like exorcists, right? Verse 19, um, if, if it says, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. And you're like, what does that even mean? Like what, what is Jesus essentially trying to say here? Um, is he pointing to the, the other Jewish exorcists that can like, cast out demons and those people will eventually be their, their, their judgment of the people that are the religious leaders of the day? That seems a little bit unlikely to me. Um, it seems odd that they would these Jewish exorcists would help in the final judgment as it says in the end of verse 19. So what I think is happening here is that the, the wording is very confusing. Like if you read the original language, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so scholars have done their best to try to like understand what Jesus intended at that time. And so when it says in verse 19, there's, uh, there's allusions, it says your followers in the NIV. It actually literally means your sons. And a lot of scholars are beginning to believe that Jesus is speaking of his disciples here. And these people, his disciples would have been people that would have honored and respected and followed these religious leaders. And they had been casting out demons in the name of Jesus, right? Like by the power of God. Uh, and they started to see that. And they're essentially saying, your own sons are casting out demons. How are they doing it, right? They're getting the same power from God that I've, like by my authority, are they casting out demons? By, by, so you're not questioning them, but you're questioning me. His point is that these people, these common men, these uneducated men and women that are, that are casting out demons on their trips across the countryside, inaugurating the kingdom of God, will be eventually the ones that judge these religious leaders in the new heavens and the new earth if they don't change their mind. And then Jesus says something absolutely profound. And it would be easy to like read the passage and say, okay, yeah, clearly Jesus is saying that he's getting this authority from God himself, but I want us to go even deeper. Verse 20 says this, if you put it up on the screen or if you have your Bible, it says this. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. 
Does anybody without, don't turn it, don't change the slide, Sarah. Does anybody know where else in the Bible the phrase finger of God is used? You get extra credit today. You get two popsicles at the end of service if you can say, anybody out there, no. Don't be using your Bibles to, like the cross references either. That's cheating. So listen to this. This is so cool. In Exodus 8, verse 19, Moses is confronting Pharaoh. And if you remember, uh, God tells Moses that, that it, he has heard the cry of the Israelites. They've been enslaved for 400 years and he's heard their cry and he's come to set them free from slavery and take them to the promised land. And they are gonna be his people, right? And he's gonna be their God. Well, Pharaoh has all these slave workers that he doesn't want to leave. And so Moses has to, in order for Pharaoh to finally let the people go, to give these plagues in order for them to see that God's power is mightier than any power that he has. And there's nothing he can do to keep these slaves uh, in the way things have been going the last couple hundred years any longer. That God is at work, that God is at hand, that the kingdom of God is moving right now, that the finger of God is moving. So listen to what it says. Exodus 8, 19, after the plague of the gnats, the magicians said to Pharaoh, these are the people trying to do the same acts that Moses could do. They couldn't do this one. This is the finger of God. That's what they said. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. This was another great moment of divine activity. It shows that God is directly involved in history through Jesus with his powerful touch of miraculous power. Now, you could say, well, Jesus knew this statement, so how do we really know? He's just saying he's like, you know, Moses, and like, but it's like, do you see what Jesus is claiming? A lot of people will say, Jesus, you know, like he never really, you know, we, we've made him this, this figure that's much bigger than he actually was, right? Jesus is saying, he is intentionally using this phrase, I'm absolutely convinced of it, to say that God's activity in the Exodus is happening right in front of you. That the heaven, that like the kingdom of God is at hand in my ministry. Jesus is saying there is a cosmic battle. There's a battle between Satan and the kingdom of God. And it's, a, it's like a great war. The combatants are facing off with everything at stake. And the, promises, the promise of the kingdom is one of the great promises of the Old Testament. God's promised agent would rule as an appointee of God, restoring the presence of righteousness on earth. And so Jesus' exorcisms is a signal of this arriving. This is what is happening right now in Jesus. And so he explains how this battle is going in the next part of the passage, verse 21 through 24. It says this, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides it up and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Jesus is saying, essentially, Satan is this strong man, but I am stronger. I'm going into his house, and I'm taking all of his possessions, all of the power of the earth, all of the treasures of the kingdom of God, and we're all, if you're going to come in to the kingdom with me, you're going to come into the house and take the plunder that you will receive, like these rewards of the kingdom of God. This is what's at stake. You're either for me, you're either with me, or you're against me. And he's declaring his power over Satan and that he is here to establish this earth as a place of righteousness and that his righteousness would triumph over the destruction that Satan is bringing. The redemption, the redemption comes through him. And so all that remains for the religious leaders and all that remains for the people that are asking for more signs is that they would choose him. So the question becomes, as Satan's house is overrun and defeated with the spoils of victory being shared with those on the winner's side, is will we choose to be on Jesus' side? Jesus is claiming that these miracles are actually the visual presence of God's victorious rule right now on earth. If you oppose him, then you will be scattered and then at verse, we're going to skip a couple of verses, but verse 27 says this, and Jesus says these things, a woman in the crowd yells out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And Jesus responds, this is supposed to be a blessing. He responds in kind of a, 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 a strong reply. <laughs> Let's just say, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. See, Jesus wants his disciples and the people that are skeptical and people that want to see more signs and the religious leaders that are against him to understand that there are two options, that this actually is something that's black and white. I'm a person that likes to kind of have my choices, right? The kind of like, not everything is always to the extremes, right? Not everything is, is, is it, it, there can be uh, uh, <laughs> compromise, right? There can be like a place in the, there is middle ground at times, but Jesus is saying there really isn't middle ground here. Jesus' work is entirely different than Satan's labors. Whereas the devil destroys, the deliverer, Jesus, rescues. Whereas Satan debilitates life, Jesus enhances. Whereas spirit cripples, Jesus liberates. Jesus shows how his work exalts life. And that this is how our lives should exist to be as well. This is how, what we should work towards. This is what we should care about. This is what obedience looks like. And so we can't distance ourselves. We can't be Christian atheists. We can't distance ourselves from miracles. Sometimes, because those things happened so long ago, um, you'll hear people sometimes come to Jesus and they'll say, well, you know, like, those people were kind of, uh, I don't know, simple people, right? They believed in all this stuff. We're more advanced now. Jesus seemed like a good guy. I think some of his teaching can be adhered to in our lives. Let's just do that. Let's take the good things. Let's believe in those things. You know, we can combine his stuff with some of the other great teachers of religion of the day, and we can kind of have our own, you know, our, our cake and our, uh, or, well, what is that phrase? Like, uh, we can eat our cake and something too? I don't know. Sometimes when you're up here, your mind doesn't work. Have your cake and eat it too, right? There we go. Got it. 
And, and I think that Jesus is pushing back, and, and I would push back against that idea today. The attempt to regulate Jesus to the level of other great religions and the people of his day couldn't do that. What they were saying and what they were seeing was this. We're seeing these miraculous signs. We know that they're happening. In fact, if you really read numerous religious like historians of the time of Jesus, they talk about Jesus' miracles as if they, they happened, Right? They weren't trying to deny the miracles at any point. They're trying to explain them. And their explanation, the best they could come up with, is that this was the act of Satan instead of God. Because they believed that everything in their reality, everything that was happening was spiritual right before them. And so because we have such distance from the time of Jesus, and it's happened 2,000 years, we can sometimes not take Jesus at his word, where he says that if you're not with me, that you're against me. Jesus is not just claiming to be one of the exorcists among others. He's not casting out demons by some magic formula or by using the name of some mighty or holy person. He says he's doing it by the very finger of God. Jesus is showing then that the God of the Exodus is alive and well and at work. And the power which enables him to defeat the the demons in the present is the same power by which through death itself he will destroy death and sin and Satan. And my question this morning is, are we with Jesus? Let's not live our lives as if we're just kind of vaguely spiritual people. Yeah, we're religious. I remember uh, my first job out of college, I was doing sales. (laughs) And one of the salesmen uh, got in the car with me and we were doing like a run to somewhere else. And I don't know how he had found out, but he had found out that I was a Christian because I certainly didn't tell him. I was afraid, right? Just like, you know, I was, again, like, I just want to be cool. I just want to fit in, right? And, he's, and he, he looks at me and he goes, so, you're pretty religious, huh? That was his, like, his statement to me. And I was like, yeah. Like, <laughs> that was my response. I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. Yeah, I guess so, right? And, uh, and if I had a little bit more courage and confidence in who I was at the time, uh, I would have said, no, I'm not just a little religious, you know. Like, I'm all the way religious. And let me tell you, let me tell you why, right? And I think so often that we're, uh, we hide behind this vague spirituality to try to, like, fit in or try to, like, appease other people. And Jesus is just saying, like, like, the kingdom of God is at hand, Right? 